Christ, talking with the God with whom nothing will be impossible. Father, we pray that you would humble us in your presence and bless bless us as we think of and think upon the implications of that truth. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for manifesting it through sending your son to die for us. And we pray now that we would look up, our mouths open, that you might fill them with your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's often the opinion of the world that religion is for old people. And it's frequently portrayed that way in films and on television. It's believed that old people are in the church because, well, because they're old. That's why they're in the church. And therefore, they're old-fashioned and sort of out of touch with the modern world. They have old ideas and they haven't moved on into the age of reason and they haven't been a part of the sophisticated evolution of society and the development of modern philosophical thought that's part of the contemporary world. Especially this is so among younger thinkers. And all this is despite the scripture admonition that is given to us by Solomon, that there is actually one generation passes away and another generation that comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run to the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. Sometimes even in the church itself, young people can see things as if each moment is sort of a picture frozen in time. They look and think that the old people in the church, they've always been the old people in the church. And if they only knew what contemporary life was all about, They might be less dedicated to the church and more progressive in their thinking. It doesn't always dawn on them that when they see men and women of faith still planted in the house of the Lord in their older ages, that some of them have spent their whole life in the house of the Lord. That some, perhaps many of them, were covenant children just like you children here this morning, and that they began their own time in the church as children. They attended through their teen years, through their college years, 
on into adulthood and then raised their own children in the house of the Lord and are now watching their grandchildren being raised in the house of the Lord. And in some cases, their great-grandchildren. The reality is that just as you, wherever you are in life, are passing through the various stages of your life, those who are ahead of you in life, they did the same thing. Bonnie and I grew up in the same church. We were little children in that church, being carried by our parents, later running into Sunday school and around the churchyard, just like some of you children. I was watching last week as I was leaving, and Luke was hiding behind a tree out here, and Jake was chasing him and so on. We had experiences just like that as little children in the church. We were just three months apart in age, and our mothers were church friends. Can you picture me? Probably not. But if you can picture me about the age of Josiah Anderson, dressed in a white gown with a a gold cord around my waist, uh, waiting in line with a bunch of other squirming kids to walk into the church and sing a song in front of everybody, well, if you can imagine that, but that's part of the history of my life. I love that gold rope uh, because it fascinated me, even as a little boy. Um, it was tied into a knot at, at both ends so that you could tie it around your waist. And beyond the knot, the strands opened up, and they were um, all the strands that were woven together to form that cord stuck out at the end of the knot. And you could see that woven in among the golden strands were smaller cords of blue and purple and green and other colors. You couldn't see it in the cord. The cord was all gold on the outside. But when you looked at that end, you could see all the other threads that were in there. They gave me an electric candle to uh, hold as we marched in. It was a Christmas candlelight service. And not just me, but everyone would try to put the candle in their mouths, see if we could make our cheeks glow. Um, We would uh, look at each other's ears with it, you know, to see if we could see anything in there. We'd hold it under our chins and make faces, you know, so that uh, we could try to make each other laugh. Any silly thing you can imagine doing with an electric candle, we tried to do it. The choir moms would try to convince us to keep them turned off until the last minute. But we were kids, so the choir mom would be down this end of the line saying, turn that candle off, turn that, and the ones down this line would turn them on and stick them in their mouths and in their ears and so on. Later as teens, we would sit together either in choir or in youth group or in the church and laugh and pray and study God's word together and think about life and enjoy it. And all along, we were growing in grace under the mighty hand of God. But there were older people in the church then. And that's how we saw them. As the older people in the church. We didn't always see them for what they were. Not older people who were always old and just always there in the church. But people just like us who had been kids, who had been teens, young adults, newlyweds, parents, 
and then grandparents. Many of them people who had made a conscious choice during every stage of their lives to acknowledge that God was their creator, their provider, and their savior. Who could say with King Solomon in Psalm 74, verse 12, For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Convinced that the Bible is indeed the only infallible rule of faith and practice, that God, for Christ's sake, does hear and answer prayer, that we are, in the end, sinners saved by grace alone, that Jesus Christ did come into the world to offer himself for our sins, that he suffered and he died and he rose again, ascended into heaven, and that he makes intercession for us even now before the throne of God and is coming again with power and great glory. People who all their lives were in the church and could say with David, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. You see, children, the old people that you see in the church are not just old people in the church, but many of them are here in the Lord's house, not just now, but the way you should look at it is they're still here. They came in as little children, and they're still in the house of the Lord. They came in as little children, and they're still feeding on God's word. They came in as little children and had all the Sunday school lessons and and all the teaching that's a part of uh, the childhood in the church, and they're still in the church, still hungry for God's word. We have found God to be everything he has declared himself to be in his word. And that's why we're still here. We're not sentimental old people who are unfamiliar with what real life is like. No, we're quite experienced in life, to tell you the truth. And we have had to deal with fears and challenges to our faith, with trials and with struggles, with joys and disappointments, all a part of real life in very real ways. And yet, we're still here. We're not people with a romantic view of Christianity and God who have had no real life experiences with him, who have sort of forgotten what it's really like to live in the world and simply reminisce selectively. Now, many of those around you have walked with God their whole life long. They've wrestled with him in prayer. Some have rebelled and been sorely corrected by him. Others have had to throw everything upon him, everything, despairing of any other help or comfort. And now in their older years, they are still here in the house of God to testify that God is exactly who he declares himself to be in his word. And that just as the angel told Mary, with God, nothing shall be impossible. It's the truth. It's the reality. It's our reality. 
It is with these seasoned saints, just as it says in the Sabbath day Psalm, Psalm 92 and verse 13. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. In every age, circumstances among men and women arise that tempt them them to ask if God can still be to us all that he promises to be. Is the God of old that we've heard about still ruling and reigning in the affairs of men and women and nations? Is the world maybe out of control suddenly? And the answer in every age, beloved, is the same. Yes, God is still ruling and reigning. And no, the world and its events are not out of his control. And part of the reason that we can testify to that is simply because there is nothing too hard for the Lord. And with the Lord, nothing is impossible. And things are no more challenging, they are no more complicated, they are no more difficult for him today than they have ever been. Than they've ever been. This is not a new age of unique complications for God to somehow wrestle with as he he tries to carry out his omnipotence and his sovereignty. Not at all. If you were to call up the first witnesses in the Bible, to the fact that with God, nothing is impossible. It might surprise you a little bit to reflect for a moment on their ages. When are we introduced to Noah? When he begins his faithful service to the Lord, when he's 500 years old. When are we introduced to Abraham? He's 75. When he, we're introduced to him as he begins to bear testimony for who God is. In Exodus chapter 7 and verse 7, we're told, And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So they begin to bear witness to this fact that with God all things are possible long into what we would call their old age. But let's go back to the passage that Mr. Brillhart read for us a few moments ago. Back to Luke chapter 1. And I want to look particularly at verse 37 this morning. Gabriel has just told Mary that she would conceive in her womb and bring forth a son whose name would be Jesus. And then in verse 32, he says he will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then you know what happens. Mary asks Gabriel. She says to him, how can this be, since I do not know a man? 
Well, how can what you've just said is going to happen to me? How can it happen to me? Because I don't, I don't know a man. And the angel in verse 35 answers Mary and says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her, what? Old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Now, notice the reasoning of Gabriel with Mary on this matter. How can she know that this is really going to happen to her as it was described to her by Gabriel. And Gabriel says, look, and consider your cousin Elizabeth. How can this be that what I've told you is going to come to pass, Mary? Well, she's pregnant, and she is in her old age, well advanced in years, Luke says. And it's now the sixth month with her who was called barren. How can any of this be, Mary? Because with God, nothing will be impossible. When he determines to do a thing, nothing can deter him from performing it. And that is Gabriel's message. And it teaches us that the only will that matters in things like this is his will. That's the only will that matters because it's his designed purpose and that designed purpose will inevitably prevail because it is his will because with God all things will be possible. In 2 Chronicles and chapter 20 we read this from Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand, is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? In effect, so that no one can resist your will, so that no one can deter your purpose or your design. Job testifies in chapter 23 and verse 13 and he says this but he speaking of God is unique and who can make him change and whatever his soul desires that he does for he performs what is appointed for me and many such things are with him Mary this is going to happen to you because God is unique and whatever his soul desires that he does And that's why you're going to have this happen to you. And the once proud but broken Nebuchadnezzar admitted before God that all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? I heard a preacher recently who doesn't believe any of these things about God, he was most impressed with man's free will. And he was preaching on that in his Christmas meditation. And he was more in awe 
of what he thought was the free will of man than he was with the sovereign will of Jehovah. He portrayed God as helplessly standing by, watching and hoping that men and women would exercise their free will in his favor. Now God was just staying there, hoping that they would, they would look to him and, and look favorably on what he'd done. He had God sending his son into the world, laying him out there in the manger and sort of saying, look what I've done, I hope you like it. I hope, I, hope, I hope this is something that, that encourages you and that you really like it. And, and you know what? If you don't, well, that's too bad for you. But if you do like it, I've got some special things for you, some special gifts for you. And that's the way he was portraying what you're reading here. The story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his coming to the world born of a virgin to suffer and die for your sins and then to rise from the dead and conquer sin and death is a dramatic testimony to the fact that nothing is impossible with God. It doesn't really reflect much on the human will at all. It's his will. It's the exercise of his will because his holy will is not only perfect, but it is efficient. It always accomplishes exactly what it desires. And from the beginning of the word, we're confronted with the reality of God's ability to do all his holy will. The God with whom all things are possible. The one with whom nothing is impossible simply because his will is the only will that matters. Think back to the beginning of time, as you know it. The earth was without form, Genesis 1 tells us, verse 2, and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and what happened? There was light, right? He expressed his will, by his spoken word, and the light sprang into being, and the darkness retreated before it without any resistance to his will. We don't get the picture that the Lord said, let there be light, and the darkness fought against it. And tried to keep it subdued so that it couldn't spring up. We don't get a picture like that at all, do we? We get a picture there was darkness, and then boom, there was light because it was the express will of the Creator. He willed the world should be filled with all manner of life, animal and vegetable. And it was so. And again, without any resistance, reluctance, or any lack of efficiency. Then when he determined to make man in his own image out of the dust of the earth, and to bring into being the complex system that makes up who and what you are, it all came together at his word. We have to rearrange things here, sorry. The dust obeyed perfectly, going from simple dust to intricate life systems at the expression of his will. Looking at that dust, he said, I want you to bring forth man, and man was brought forth. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9 say, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, he lays up the deep in storehouses. 
Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of him. Why? For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And you can go freely on from there, beloved. Did the Lord ask Abraham, who was Abram then, to consider moving out of Ur? He say, Abraham, you know, I'd like for you to think about maybe moving from Ur into a land of promise that I prepared for you. Would you take some time to think about that? To get back to me and tell me what your thoughts are on that subject. Is that how it went, do you think? No. The Lord said, Abraham, leave. And he made Abraham willing, and so he left. Do you remember the time when the Lord came to Sarah and said to her in her old age, Sarah, I'd like for you to bear a child. Would you be willing to do that for me? Or did he say to her, Sarah, you're going to have a child? He told her what his will was. And Sarah had a child, according to the will of the Lord. He allowed Pharaoh to put up some resistance, but in doing so, God was merely demonstrating the fact that with him all things are possible. And he simply broke Pharaoh's resistance by one miraculous judgment after another, and finally defeated the army of Pharaoh, the king who worshipped the Nile, by drowning him. Because it was his will. God didn't ask David's opinion about being king. He chose and then made him his king, despite the fact that when Saul came into his father's house, or rather, uh, when Solomon came into, not Solomon, Samuel came into his father's house, Jesse never even considered David a candidate. You see, the only will that matters is his will. He chose David. It didn't matter what the will of anyone else was. None of the prophets, as far as we know, were volunteers. They were all elected messengers, chosen, fitted out, and then used by God according to his will. And as we slow down here at the record of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, do you see any volunteers here in this story? When you look at the story, do you see any volunteers? Did the Lord have a discussion with Zacharias and Elizabeth about whether they were willing to be the parents of the forerunner? Or did he just appear to Zacharias and say, Zacharias, your wife's going to have a child? We know what happened. That's what happened. The Lord said that's what's going to be. And what happened when Zacharias entertained some doubt about the completion of God's purpose there? Well, we read in Luke chapter 1 and verse 18 that Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And what did Zacharias have to say about all that? About being made mute? 
Do they get to say, well, I'm not going to accept that. <laughs> I'm not going to be made mute. I, I've got a lot I want to say. <laughs> no, you have nothing to say about it. Nothing to say about the whole matter until he was released according to God's will. His wife Elizabeth conceived, bore a son, and he became the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. And what of Joseph? Did Joseph volunteer? He was told after the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and then he was instructed to take responsibility for her. And even more dramatically, as we get right here where we are, there's Mary. Was word put out from heaven to look for a virgin to come forward to do this job? No. The Lord determined that she should be the one. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Mary was told what was going to happen to her. She wasn't asked if she was willing to have it happen. And then God made her willing. I read a commentator recently who insisted that this wasn't a command. That, and that if Mary had taken the option of saying, no, thank you, she would have been skipped over. But it all happened because she willingly acquiesced to the Lord's word. I believe it's a stretch to read that into this angelic encounter and that uh, he's substituting the Lord's giving her a willing spirit for some sort of agreement. We know that with his calling, God gives a willing heart. He gave a willing heart to Mary. He gave a willing heart to Joseph. And he gave it to all who are involved in this. You see, that, you see that plainly in their reactions to what they're told. But that takes nothing away from the, that fact that for God, nothing is impossible. In fact, it fortifies the matter. That he not only makes it happen, but he makes the people willing for them to have it happen. And this declaration of the angel Gabriel that with God nothing shall be impossible is, as John Gill states, consistent with his nature and perfection, with his counsels and with all his promises. There is nothing, beloved, that your God has either proposed or promised that he is not able to perform no matter what apparent obstacles stand between him and that promise. Whether it's time, whether it's political or physical circumstances, whether it's human will, whether it's satanic opposition or anything else, none of it can hinder God in the performance of his word. He speaks and it's done. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 4 through 5, that's, that's built into the announcement of the coming of the forerunner. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain shall be and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Why? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. He has spoken it and therefore it will be. And there's not a promise 
uttered by any prophet of the Lord or by any angel, such as we saw last week in regard to Christ's return, that he is not fully able to fulfill. Even ones like this regarding the virgin birth of his son, nothing that he cannot fulfill. And Gabriel offers two witnesses to how Mary can be sure that this is going to happen exactly as God says. Witness one is the miraculous conception of Elizabeth in her old age. And number two, the obvious and well-attested infinite omnipotence of God. The great Dr. Lightfoot. He was a 17th century English clergyman and a rabbinical scholar from Cambridge. He believed that all the instances instances in the Old Testament of those having children that had been long barren, which was above nature, were designed to prepare the world for the belief of a virgin's bearing a son, which was against nature. And therefore, even in the birth of Isaac, Abraham saw Christ's day foresaw such a miracle in the birth of the Christ. If, as the angel from heaven told Mary, nothing is impossible with God, even this, that was about to fall upon her. If he said nothing is impossible with God, then even this is possible. For with God, Matthew Henry says, nothing shall be impossible. And if nothing then not this. No word of God must be incredible to us as long as no work of God is impossible to him. You know, it's not uncommon, beloved, for the people of God to look out on the circumstances that surround them and to believe that the difficulties that have arisen and the dangers and the threats that pose an an inescapable situation have penned them in. But it should be remembered that whenever God's people who have heard and seen that with him nothing is impossible begin to entertain those sorts of fears, they dishonor both the providence and the omnipotence of their God. It begins to dishonor him. When we look around at the circumstances around us and the situation we're in, and we begin to entertain the idea that maybe can't, God can't keep what he's promised. Maybe God can't do what he says. We then dishonor his providence and the testimony of his omnipotence. Even Moses stumbled this way when the people complained about him bemoaning their pleasant days in Egypt and saying, if only we could go back there and, and enjoy the sumptuous meals that we had in Egypt, we would be happy. Why have you brought us out here to die? It's perhaps Moses' weakest moment, but Moses goes to the Lord and he says in Numbers eleven eleven, why have you afflicted your servant? He's talking about himself. Why have you done this to me, Lord? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? 
Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, Moses says. They weep all over me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, Please kill me here and now, Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. And the Lord then gently corrects Moses, and then he says this, Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat, not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out your nostrils, and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying why did you ever come up out of Egypt pretty serious words from the Lord right not two days not three days not ten not twenty but a month until it's coming out your nostrils you'll be so sick of this meat I'm going to give you And what does Moses do? Moses looks around at the huge number of people in the camp. And he surveys the stark and empty and hostile wilderness. And Moses looks up to the Lord and says, The people whom I am among among, are 600,000 men on foot. As if he's saying, Lord, did you, did you see how many are here? Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? Moses looks at the circumstances and he says, how can this be? First, I've got these people that I can't stand. And they're constantly complaining. And they weep all over me. I ask you for help. And you say you're going to feed them for a month. And look how many of them there are. And look where we are. How are you going to provide meat here to feed all these people? And the Lord had a very simple answer for his weary and discouraged servant. He said to Moses, Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Moses, where have you been? Has something happened that you think I'm not who I am? That my arm's been shortened? Now you will see whether what I say will happen to you or not. And we all know what happened. They ate for a month, and the meat came out their nostrils, and they were sick and tired of it. The Lord did exactly what he said he was going to do. Didn't matter how many there were. 
It didn't matter where they were. What he said was going to come to pass, came to pass. Because the only will that matters is his will. Now let me speak first to any who may have doubts about the promise of God concerning (laughs) his son, Jesus Christ. Excuse me. That he came to seek and to save what was lost. You should understand that the declaration of the scriptures to why Jesus came was to save sinners. You may have in your mind the idea that your sin is too bold or too awful. And that because of that, you can somehow frustrate his love. But he came to seek and to save sinners. Not, a, not just almost sinners. Not just sort of sinners. Not just ones who haven't been too bad. But to save sinners. Whoever they may be. Whatever their sins may be. And to you the scripture says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor is ear heavy, heavy that he cannot hear. And the call upon you from the word of God is to call upon the God with whom nothing is impossible and to look for him for that saving grace that he has promised to those who come to him in Jesus Christ looking for the forgiveness of their sins and looking to find peace with God. Because with him, nothing is impossible. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he is always lives to make intercession for them. And for all of you who acknowledge and believe that God indeed do all this for us, just as he promised, and let us rejoice in it at this season. May the Lord refresh us in our faith and in our love for him and in our confidence in him. By the remembrance of it all, how it demonstrates that with him nothing is impossible. Whether it is his promise to redeem you or whether it's his promise to never forsake you in any of the challenges or the trials of your life or whether it's the promise to one day transform our lowly bodies that they may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. With him, nothing is impossible. The very thing we celebrate right now is witness to that fact. And now is the time to to grab on to that truth and to this evidence of that truth and apply it to our hearts. Foote says, what is there consistent with wisdom and justice that God cannot do? Is there anything too hard for him? In a word, if we trust in our own strength, nothing spiritually good can be accomplished. But if we trust in the Lord's strength, everything good will be achieved. The book of Hebrews says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were made of things which were, which were, were not made of things which were visible. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And why do we believe that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him? Because as Gabriel told Mary, with God, nothing will be impossible. Nothing. And so we believe everything promised will be fulfilled. Because with this God, it's his will that matters. And with that will, there is nothing that is impossible to him. And all that he's promised to do, all that he's promised to fulfill for his own glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow humbly in your presence this morning. Because indeed, with you, all things are possible. Father, we look out in the world in which we live right now, and the temptation is to wonder, is it true? But then we look back across the course of history, and we see how many times in the story of man there have been circumstances in which it was wondered, can God do what God has promised? And the answer which forms the evidence for us in every one of those ages has been yes. And in every church, there are believers who are still in the house of the Lord who have watched that happen throughout their whole lifetime. And Lord, we're witnesses to the fact that with you, nothing will be impossible. You, Lord, are able to fulfill all your holy will. And we pray, Lord, that we be faithful to bear witness to that, Lord, faithful to declare it. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen the hearts of your people in their faith and their confidence in you. And that, Lord, we wouldn't look at the circumstances, we'd look at our God. We wouldn't look at the words of men, but the power of your word. And Father, take heart. Grow in faith. Grow in strength. And grow in peace. And Lord, if there's anyone who's listening in today, one way or the other, has not put his or her trust in you, we pray, Father, that even now they would look to the one for whom all things are possible. The evidence of it in sending your son in love for the propitiation of men's sins. Lord, they would look to you, cry out for mercy, and find that which you have promised to all who come to you in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your power to save to the uttermost. And Lord, we pray that there may be some who will know that today who have never known it before. And may all of us who do rejoice and give thanks. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.